Welcome back to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest for this episode, Joe Colley. Hi, Joe. Uh, hello. And uh, I think Tara has a few things to say about Joe before we get started. Well, I just thought we'd give a little uh, brief introduction about um, our esteemed guest, Joe. Uh, Joe Colley is a sound artist from California. He began his artistic journey as Crawl Unit in the late 80s and eventually transitioned to his own name. Aside from running his own label, Povertech Industries, he's released work on labels such as Gross, Mother Savage, Pure, Groundfault, Crippled Intellect Productions, and Self-Abuse Records. Known for his intimate soundscapes, which frequently feature field recordings, manipulated tape, and other mysterious means, his sonic work paired with intriguing concepts take the audience on an internal journey where beauty, sadness, anger, and ambivalence can rapidly cycle and morph into each other. Well, welcome to the podcast, Joe. We're so excited to have you. Um, it's an honor. Heck yes. And we usually do get our episodes started with a little recent listening. Did you have any recent listening that you wanted to... I had a couple things. Uh... uh so there's an art space in San Francisco called The Lab, and they put out a facsimile of this Terry Fox 7-inch. It's Terry Fox and Joseph Boys performing together. Mm-hmm. Super rare record, and they just did a new edition of it. I'm pretty sure it's sold out already. but I mean, I, he got to read the back, but maybe it's too long. But it's, it's just everything I love about a 7-inch. It's kind of a documenting a performance and uh, super cool. If you could, I love uh, your appreciation for seven inches. Like I even <laughs> we even read about it in an interview how you like how it you know like captures one moment and becomes like an artifact. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but uh, you know we we've been exploring them every Sunday, just trying to yeah. really appreciate seven inches. I like them. Yeah, they're they're they condense everything. Uh, I also got this. I haven't really delved too deep, but the Enrico Piva. Five CD box. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He's a no. pretty obscure Italian no. artist. Uh, it's the box was assembled by Giancarlo Tianiudi, who was like a friend of his. So it's oh, crazy cool. cassette '80s, like just recorded in caves and dredgers and industrial sounds. It's 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 cool. I have a feeling but I'll be picking that to, one up. <laughs> yeah, I think they only made three hundred of them, so it's. It's recommended. He's kind of a male art. I don't know. Maybe GX might have even known him. I'm not sure. But I also pulled out the, the album called Crackle by Michael Waveses. Do you know him? No. He, he's the guy that invented the Crackle box. He's a Dutch guy. and uh, Well, I don't have it anymore, but it's just like live electronics uh, from the 80s. I don't know if you ever heard those Crackle boxes. They're like a little touch circuit device. So I just... Gives you those crazy, like dying toy sounds. I remember so. those from like the the when I was first getting into stuff, like the two thousand, early two thousands, late nineties, being around. But I don't think I ever experienced one. Or remember them yeah. being like talked about on mailing lists or whatnot. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, cool. And then I think I, I already mentioned to you one time about uh, Gordon Monahan. It's one of my favorite. Artist, oh, yeah. I pulled out his swinging speaker, swinging LP, which yeah. is a must. Super, <laughs> super important to me. Mind, mind blowing. When I heard that sounds it. so cool. Was that yeah. something you heard early on, or is that? 
Yeah, actually, I, the story's funny because I worked with a guy that kept a box of LPs by his desk because we worked in a warehouse where we had a turntable and it was like, it got, you know, you'd get in these weird passive aggressive people trying to torture each other with stuff and like who could control the turntable. And then so he had like a box of really weird records that he found somewhere that he thought would like annoy people. And that was like one of them he put on because it's just like, woo, 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 woo. you know, I mean, it's. It's over the whole side of our record. It's just this crazy tones in a giant room, you know. Sounds so like the, that's what, the impression you did sounds like a a bull roarer. Uh huh. Yeah, definitely has that All right. element to it. Yeah. <laughs> and the people swinging the speakers got to be kind of buff too, because I mean, they the performance is like forty minutes long or something. So oh my god! That's a lot of wow. That's like, yeah. Someone give a chop shop access to like a Ferris wheel or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Connelly, has you guys been listening to anything? Honestly, it's been a lot of Crawl Unit and a lot of Joe (laughs) Colley releases uh, gearing up for this episode. We just Uh, turned off the bees. Yes, the Hive uh, release. uh, Oh, yeah. Last thing we listened to before that. So, I mean, we'll just go right in we got the man right here We're, so that is this that is the a beehive is the sound source of that recording correct yeah I, yeah it, was it was it a beehive like is it your hive yeah. is it a friend's no hive? <laughs> uh, an acquaintance i mean i, I actually yeah. didn't it was a my father was actually a beekeeper so i always loved bees and a lot of most everything about them you know but i never have taken it on myself but i think i found that hive just through like a little beekeepers association contact list or something i just like randomly contacted a guy and said do you mind if i come and record and he yeah and he was cool with it just kind of you know funny old hippie-ish kind of guy but that yeah that recording there's i mean he was like he got really into it he because we embedded mics inside the hive and got some um you know most of the sound uh, is when they're leaving, you know, their wings and stuff. And so you, there's some, mm-hmm. all their contact mics and regular mics and different kinds of mics. <laughs> so, but wow. uh, yeah. Did you wear? Did you wear a beekeeper's? Uh, I did. Suit yeah. While you recorded mm-hmm. it. You know? oh, or maybe just so. the maybe just the mesh helmet. I don't think I. I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I never really been that freaked out by bees, but. But uh, but yeah, he was telling me that uh, in the winter they kind of, for warmth, they like swarm into like a dense ball. And he said that those hive gets super hot and you could, I guess, makes a different kind of sound depending on the season. So he was saying, oh, you should have been here in the winter or whatever. So. But, yeah, it would. My grandfather raised bees and they, they can melt the snow on the hive. Wow. Like, like definitely. And in the summertime, it stays cool by flapping their wings. That's a great right. sound. Yeah. <laughs> so you so you still have a CD player that plays three inch like in a tray. Actually, we were listening to it off uh, Bandcamp, uh, and we will obviously Bandcamp. put a link up right. to yes. that because uh, Friday is uh, no fee day, so everyone needs oh, to yeah. be grabbing uh, the Hive release uh, on Friday. So you don't even have to wait; you can listen to it right away. Yes, yes, yes. So oh. yeah, yeah. I do our CD player depth three inches, and like CDRs are definitely hit or miss on our CD player these days, especially yeah. like 
if if it's from like 2000, it's probably not gonna play a CDR. Uh, <laughs> three inches are kind of hit or miss on the CD player too, um, mm. but um, but yeah, no, that one's that's a uh, a a very there's some very great, sick great one. three inches. Yeah, I I got a box of great ones. It's great chop shop uh, one. I think V2 put it out in a lead cover. You have to like unpeel Ooh. the metal to get the disc out and stuff. Cool stuff. <laughs> Hell yeah! You did a yeah. you did a three inch for a Damian Romero's P tapes label. The uh, oh man, yeah, <laughs> no sound has ever been heard. <laughs> man, probably one of the weaker entries in that series. I would say. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't heard that one in a while. But if I remember right, that could be. I think it's oh man. It's kind of like I got into this thing for a while about listening to stuff forwards and backwards and trying to find sounds that sound the same forwards and backwards, which is kind of like that. There's an installation. Well, there's a seven inch, a conceptual seven inch I did that's kind of plays with that too. We could talk about, Um, but but uh, I think if I remember the P tapes one, it's like it goes into a certain point it's like a live performance and then it just like reverses and it's the same track backwards but it's it's like i feel like not that you couldn't tell where it starts and stops but i just like the confusion of it and i think that's i could be wrong maybe that's a different record but i think that's the one (laughs) is there a word for a sound palindrome i don't know i don't know I sort of like that I idea know, but... of playing it forwards and then reversing it halfway and, and playing it backwards. It's sort of like uh, unhearing it, you know, like rewinding yeah. the tape. It's Ooh. you're sort of taking back what you've given uh, in reverse. It's strange. I like it. Yeah, I think on the cover it says like, "No sound has ever been heard. Every sound has already been made," or something like that. So it's <laughs> sort of, uh, yeah. No, I, I. It's it's kind of a visual visual idea too you know it's like a yeah uh what's the uh, what's the seven inch that also plays with this idea um it's a it was made for a exhibition in san francisco i want to say 2005 it's clear it's a clear vinyl one-sided record that's screen printed uh with the words no and one like alternating and then all the it's lock grooves and it's it's various forwards and reversals of the words no and one so they start like you then when the one is backwards it sounds like no you know stuff like that uh i actually just uh bought that seven inch off of your uh shop which you have up oh, yeah. now at uh issueshop.com where you put up a bunch of uh, old Povertech and crawl yeah. unit and uh, a bunch of your work that has been hard to find like i didn't know about this seven inch i actually had to go through and check through some of my uh rare stuff to see if <laughs> Like what I had, I almost I almost bought like a very rare lathe cut that I then realized that I do own. I I know I wanted it, but I wanted to make sure that I had it. Uh, oh man, I know it's weird to sell that stuff, but uh, well, but, we can uh, take the doubles. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> I made a an Instagram, and there's a link to the stuff I'm selling on there. So maybe that's. I will include a link to your Instagram and to the uh, issues shop as well as the the Hive on Bandcamp. Uh, Oh, yeah. um, My introduction to your stuff was actually through a lot of the seven inches. Uh, Someone, this is old, like, uh, like rec music experimental, like, news group and mailing list days. And someone was uh, getting rid of a, uh, like, pretty nice collection of 
your CDs and Seven Inches, and I bought all of it. I think because I heard like one thing I liked, and uh, I and what. so I I like lucked into. I have just a stack of all the old Seven Inches, and so now whenever I there's one that I'm missing, <laughs> I have to pick it up, which is why I just ordered a few Seven Inches from you. You just put out one uh, last year. Yeah, yeah. Came What's, out in, on Miu Music, a great, great label, great friend of mine from Belgium. Is that a drawing um, of you relaxing in a, in a lawn no. chair on the cover? <laughs> no, he just it's it's like clip art or something. I mean, I don't know. It's the, the guy who runs the label's name Yoss Moores, and he's like a really uh, funny guy. He likes to use really like cheap bad quality uh graphics and stuff so it's kind of like and it's he's sort of one of those guys when it when you're on his label you can't make the cover you know he does it so 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 he just <laughs> did that but then but i mean i guess i mean it kind of looks like me but I have <laughs> i'm to. gonna pretend it's you <laughs> he also put out that clay clay sound record that came out i don't know if you have that one but it's mm, a i don't think so field drink it's just an amplified bucket of clay absorbing water it's just like two sides yeah sounds great that's one of my favorite <laughs> wow. things i've done i guess <laughs> so. uh, where, where did you rec- when did you record that and how did you record that what was the process i mean i discovered the phenomena of it because i uh i used to teach art at a like a day program for disabled adults and they it was sort of like uh you know, there's it's a really hard job, and there's like people always coming and going. So there's sort of like all this half stuff in progress. Like no one had ever done any ceramics in like years. So they had this mega trash can. The first time I did it was the very best, but I wasn't prepared. You know, <laughs> they had this trash can of dried clay, and then I wanted to reconstitute it, so I filled it with water, and it's just like totally insane universe of it's like water going into tiny tiny holes and stuff but it's just i mean it sounds like nothing else i've ever heard so so i started recording recording that i did it live a bunch of times some of it is on uh, the desperate attempts of beauty cd too no okay way. that's i was like i was like i know i have yeah. the clay sound but i don't have but, the seven inch okay it's on that cd as well okay okay but i must say i mean this is giving me opportunity to say about that cd that the track listing is wrong <laughs> and has never been corrected which well, i wow. never know how to tell people but everything well, is shifted now. by one so it's ah. like basically the first track is just noise and it has no title but then the next track is a recording of ice water melting. But then it's like it's, the tracks are they're all off by one. <laughs> so I think that might have caused some confusion because there's that's, two clay tracks well, on there. But I think awesome. they here first. Yeah. So I don't know if that made sense or not, but <laughs> it was uh, clearly intentional and it gave us something to think about. There you go. <laughs> Uh, how did you go about recording the the clay? What, uh, what was the technique you used for that? Um, the, the I think the technique that ended up being the best was just uh, like a pretty small container. The clay has to be super dry, really dry, and then uh, just like piezos on the various places on around the side of a bucket. Because uh, yeah, I think it, it's something about being in the container. I mean, I tried it. You almost can't hear it with this regular microphones, too. So, but I didn't go too crazy. I, I've never been that uh, 
I mean, I love contact mics. I've never been that good at making them or getting into microphones <laughs> that much, so I'm kind of ignorant of some of it. <laughs> Uh, some of my favorite microphones are like cheap condenser mics on cassette Walkman, yeah. and uh, actually, uh, you you talk about in the the great Banana Fish interview, the uh, Library of Congress uh, and the uh, American Clearinghouse, uh, American Publishing House for the Blind tape decks, which oh, yeah. I think has been a staple of probably all of our setups at some point. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I just discovered a new one that I'd never seen before that is a Walkman, but it also plays either side and at the different speeds. It has the same controls oh, as the larger ones, but it's in handheld size, uh, which wow. is very exciting. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. No, I love like bad microphones. I really used to like the ones that come with uh, like old reel to reel. So it's kind of like on a stand kind of thing. I used to use one of those in particular quite a bit, but, what was some of the first stuff you used in recording in you know, as crawl unit? Oh man. Hmm. Well, I mean, my my mother uh, was just like a thrift shopper, she's like fanatic, and I, so I kind of grew up around a lot of junk and stuff. And so, um, yeah, definitely like the uh, reel to reels. Definitely, I had a cassette recorder walkman pretty early on um casio sk5 <laughs> if you're familiar i'm sure oh yeah not circuit bent or any of that just the straight <laughs> one um uh, used to yeah i do a lot of stuff with uh like the caliphone school turntables i don't know if you've seen those they kind of like amks actually i gave i had i ended up with like five of them and i just gave him all the amk which is great because nice. he, he needs them more than me you know but the, <laughs> they're those uh some of them i don't know if you've seen those but some of them have like pa inputs and you can like feed them back th through themselves and stuff oh, wow. like that um had a couple like i you know the music store in my town would have sales sometimes where they'd have scratched pedals and stuff like that so i did have like a dod delay i think i had a i had some kind of electro harmonics phaser or something but i just which i love the way it looked but i don't i don't know phasing is yeah, <laughs> never really <laughs> found a place for it <laughs> my, uh, but yeah those tape decks are amazing one of my first pedals i bought when i started making noise was also a phaser and i think that that might be uh a mistake it's like it was like easy to get and cheap because it's you know guitarists don't really want them or need them that much i think and so <laughs> i also yeah. had some phaser that like just made everything everything sound like a phaser i'm like oh man there's <laughs> I like a phaser and a compressor and i it just couldn't make anything sound good because <laughs> i didn't have any anything to really modify the sound in a way that i wanted right <clears throat> no it's amazing to me the stuff that's out around now because my my memory of going to a music store is it's like all designed for people that play real music. You, know? <laughs> you couldn't find like I mean the whole boutique pedal thing is like I I guess that's more recent phenomena because when I was you know if you would go someplace and look for like something that could make the weirdest sound you know or you get you know I would be naive and just buy some pedal that's supposed to be some guitarist pedal and you can't get any sounds out of it or something stuff like that just because you no one was making noisy stuff but uh and then i remember this company i 
they made those little half rack EQ killers. They were just like tried to market them to DJs. They were like three different ones that are colored, which you, maybe you have. I don't. I never ended up being able to get one. But there's like a yeah, the warp delay one or something. Uh oh. You had to stand up for that one. Oh, it looks like. Is this? Oh yeah, <laughs> electrics, right? Oh man! And Gray pulls the gear off the shelf. Yep. But see, I remember many. I remember many times seeing those like on clearance because no one they're too weird. No one knows how to use them. Yet. So mm-hmm. that's this kind of stuff I used to like to buy. But yeah, I've seen. I bought uh, this thing I've called s- the Vortex. The Vortex. You know thing? No. Yeah, Dave Wright from Not Breathing turned me onto it, and it's like. I still don't think I've ever been able to truly understand it. You put two signals into it, and then you have these knobs, and it like warps them together into different ways and stuff. It's really, ah. I mean, it's I'm sure it's commercial failure because it's just, yeah, yeah, these, super practical. These half rack uh, the electrics was the company that made them with an yeah. X, and they were geared at DJs. They have phono inputs and uh, preamps, uh, like signal boost, on them. Um, and I bought mine because uh, a friend told me they were all clearanced because no one was buying them. So this company went out of business and they sold off all their stock at like, you know, cost like bargain uh, basement prices. So that's that's why I have one of these still. Um, it doesn't look cool, but it certainly does work. So yeah, that's nice. Those are those are funny. I like I like half rack size stuff. Uh, you know. Yeah. The first call unit tape is 1989. Is that correct? That's what I remember. I mean, so, I could be wrong. <laughs> and you were and you were still in high school at the time. Yeah, right. So what what was the impetus? I mean, what what was the urge to start a project, record a tape, and release a tape in 1989 for you? Man, um, I mean that that there were tapes that I there were just like one offs that I would make for friends and stuff. Um, but that that one. Uh, I mean, I think I mentioned, well, a big influence was a magazine called Fact Sheet 5, which was a networking magazine that um, was just full of addresses and stuff. And it was like, it's kind of weird. It's I think about, I was thinking a lot about this. So it's, it's There's kind of a parallel tape trading scene that is not noise, which I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but there's like people that have no knowledge of like harsh noise or that even that world that are that make really weird tapes and there always has been so some of the first people I corresponded with were kind of like I mean there was no scene they had you know there are people like uh I don't know if you've heard Minoy or Croiners I mean these are like early just male tape trader fanatic guys you know yeah, I think um, Minoy is starting to get uh, like some reissues out of some of that stuff. I think he passed away. Yeah, yeah, someone's two, someone's doing the catalog and uh, getting like reissues and collections of it out. Yeah, but I I always appreciated the variety because I mean some of these guys are doing poetry readings and looping their voice and stuff, you know, with delays and just all kinds of it was very homemade sounding. So I think. I don't know how I, I mean, I just wanted to make the tape to have some to trade and put it on consignment. There's a couple of local stores and things like that. <laughs> I think I had one. 
I think I had I put one on consignment at the Rough Trade record store on Haight Street, and then this was like when long distance I would just call and be like, "Did it sell?" You know, <laughs> I'm calling <laughs> from Sacramento, like running up this phone bill to like make two bucks or something. You know, so just <laughs> things you do, things you do when you're young. <laughs> so there was a record store in my town where it was like in Sacramento where uh, you would literally they were just total crooks everything was super overpriced but it would be like the only place you could find some certain imports and i remember you know you'd bring in like 30 records and just have enough credit to buy like one can record or something and you just feel so like oh man you know this is like shouldn't have to be like this you know I don't know. What so, who that? were some of the who were some of the first who were some of the first people you got in contact with, as far that would be you know, quote unquote noise you know artists uh, you know as as we kind of think about yeah. it. Yeah, man. Yeah, my memory is not so good at the kind of order. I mean, I definitely was in in touch with Obe, you know Nakajima, um, pretty early, I think. Um, Chocolate Monk, and uh, you know I kind of lost touch, unfortunately. But uh, uh, I'm trying to think. There used to be a magazine. I don't know if you ever was it really a magazine. There was a there's a label. It was British called Fourth Dimension, and he he made a magazine called Adverse Effect. It was kind of that whole uh, kind of grimy UK. You know, yeah. There's a group like Splintered and some of these guitar noise. Kind of stuff, and uh, we we were corresponded quite a bit for a while. Um, um, trying to trying to think of who. I mean, definitely MSPR and Ron. Um, well, you were well. I you were at a a an early show at least uh, in at Mass Art. Is this correct? Yes, man. I the, so I listened to I listened to your episode. Yes, on, <laughs> on kick that habit. The incredible film voice crack is like gods gods to me um mm-hmm. but i saw that film when it was projected at this noise festival that they did at the mass college of art i want to i think it was 1993 i put out a 10 inch of my own around that time when i lived there and uh man it was really a pivotal pivotal moment in my life um i saw just I mean it was like all day you know it was really a lot of local like you know art school kid groups too you know just and good ones too I mean I remember there was one called Webcore they were really great just like live electronics I don't know if project ever released anything or what but that is that is Mark uh who is now in skin crime that was really that was an early project of his yes and and yeah, and and that was even before Pat knew Mark or yeah. or Matt, uh, aka Crank. Um, so that was the, there's something about this show. Uh, the more and more <laughs> we hear about it, there's this is a very uh, this is a there's something very special. It about was this like show. a cosmic oh, intersection yes. somehow. No, I mean with I can, the people I can, that were there. <laughs> I mean, there were so many. The reason it was so mind blowing is because it was like my first kind of time seeing. A lot of these things. I think, if I remember right, Illusion of Safety played and used a field recording of like these kids in a playground or something, and it was just like so 
crisp and evocative and then they were they had it mixed in there and it was just like i mean i knew about field recordings but i just that was mind-blowing to be like you know because it's like they're almost dropping you in and out of scenes that you can visualize and you know there's kind of that to watch someone kind of you know take you on a journey sort of sound wise you know that was but still abstract i might have had I don't know. There was a while there. They had drum machines and stuff. I think they had a big piece of metal they might have banged on too. But, but, uh, but I think the big one for me was to see Kaput Music because, um, if I'm remembering it right, it's just a long table. I think it's Franz De Ward and Peter Dominik's maybe at that time, and uh, he's maybe making some low sounds or something. And I think it was Franz is just kind of strolling around the stage with like a glass of ice water or iced tea or something and you're just kind of like what where's where is this gonna go and then he just strolls for a little while and then he just comes over and sets that glass down and it's like boom the whole like it just <laughs> blew my mind because it's like um you know the table has been amplified the whole time but but there was no sound you know and so it's kind of like the potential of noise and silence and the contrast uh it's just Super simple, but amazingly well done. He just starts grinding the cup on, uh, I guess, maybe a sheet of metal. Or might have just been the table. I don't know. But I think there was an LP that came out that Ron put out that's a couple couple music shows from that same era. That's definitely worth getting. But, I mean, I guess that would have been my introduction to a contact mic, right? I mean, I never really thought about it before that. So... Yeah, I, I don't think I had ever seen anybody use a live contact mic before. So, um, yeah, it was a very important show. And then, of course, the film "Kick That Hab is incredible. Oh, so yeah. I've, I've been lucky yes. enough to meet uh, some of the, you know, Mazlang from Voice Crack a few times. He's amazing solo, too. Just, yeah, legends, legends. But I mean, it's like the, I just remember that day is just kind of getting pummeled with like, Almost like wanting to, like, I want to stay till the end, but I kind of like want to run home and start messing around. <laughs> like you get that inspirational feeling, you know, <laughs> thinking, oh, man, like I've, I've been so, you know, there's like so many things I could have done, you know, it's like, so I was special, definitely special. Was the Versus Silence CD out at that point or was that before that CD was out? I don't know. It must have been before. Oh, yeah, it's got to be before. Like, did you, did you introduce yourself to anybody at that? Like, did you no. know Ron or no? You were just totally anonymous. Like a, an anonymous bystander. <laughs> I can't remember. I don't No, I don't think I knew anybody. I don't think I met anybody, actually. I, I did stay at Ron's house one time with, uh, with Mason Jones from Trance, from Chartle House. He was an wow. early contact. Definitely a connection to Japan. I mean, he's like, you know, huge expert on Japanese underground music and stuff. So he played a gig in Lowell, and I actually never made it into the Triple R, into the shop ever, because it was like after hours. But I, we like slept on his floor. So, but I don't, I don't think, I think that must have been after the, this noise fest. <laughs> wow. Did you get, did you get any merch at the fest? I think I did by the, the sweet music cassette that Absolutely was on self abuse. A wonderful choice. I think I did get that there. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember if there was that there was a lot of merch, but definitely could revisit that tape. And then, like, I, th- 
I think, uh, I mean, the whole weird connection to the self-abuse that they, they stayed at my house and that's when we kind of started talking about serial killers, and and then I, that's when I they, he asked me to make that uh, that seven inch in that series. So it's kind of a funny, yeah, funny thing. I think he just like looked at my bookshelf, and I had a lot of serial killer books. So it's kind of a random uh, connection. Were you in yeah. California at that time? Mm-hmm. When, yeah. when they stayed with you? Yeah, I don't remember much about where they played or anything though that's strange I don't... why um, did you uh go with zodiac for your murder seven inch <laughs> um yeah there's that other guy from sacramento right the vampire chase oh yeah, Richard yeah chase. Richard chase. got a little more local but no i uh zodiac is uh, yeah i mean he's, he's always struck me as the most intellectual or or uh uh yeah it's a it's an intellectual quality, a, a mysterious quality. The you know the the ciphers and the codes. I'd really appreciate the. I mean, even quotes from Gilbert and Sullivan, like one of his letters, and you're just kind of like, yeah. this guy has a, a very strange mentality. It's just, uh, yeah. And then it's, yeah, the local factor too. I mean, you can still, uh, you know, Lake Berryessa is not far from here. Where's one of the sightings, one of his sightings where he's wearing the mask, you know, the most dangerous ah. game gear or whatever, I think was at Lake Berryessa. But, but yeah, my serial killer interest has kind of waned. I know I haven't followed uh, if they've ever found out who he was. I just kind of don't want to know anymore. No. <laughs> so. I don't think they will. But yeah, he did. He 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 quoted and paraphrased the Mikado uh, yeah. bunch in in his yeah. in his letters which i thought was that's a very fascinating thing yeah. but also i i do think it's i do think that that i i love that you're a part of the murder series because it there is something like i just think that was a time when before a lot of the boundaries were drawn it didn't it wasn't weird for like crawl unit to be next to slogan to be next to skin crime to be next to you know whatever it was all just this kind of wide field of kind of freedom did you do you remember feeling that at the time just kind of like just the openness i guess and the yeah, exploration definitely. yeah i mean that's i mean that goes back to the early tape trading days it's just the, the the yeah the openness and uh yeah i mean i definitely missed that about i just mean uh, i really like that feeling when you see a like a show with like five people and they're all totally different and they're just like none of it is anything that you would ever do you know it's like it's yeah it's that's how it should be i think but you know there's a difference between a uh recording a beehive and recording a bucket of clay because you had to set up the bucket of clay sort of properly to do the recording and and do more testing whereas with the hive you're sort of trying to capture the natural essence of it uh do you see a, a divide or difference in using those kind of two different approaches in your work yeah, um, it's something, I mean, I wouldn't say I wrestled with it, but it's like something I thought a lot about, about, uh, you know, using, altering field recordings and things like that. I, at a certain point, I just thought they should remain pure. So it's sort of, um, I mean, I've never like sat down and <laughs> written it out or something, but it, it occurs to me that I guess some of the things I've, done release wise and stuff performance wise are kind of in different categories in my mind because to make a purely electronic composition is kind of one 
one thing, but there's other recordings that I think that, you know, I don't, I don't think they would need to be considered music. They're more documentary. Um, so I, I think that at a certain point they became more separated. Uh, um, I kind of, yeah, just, uh, I mean, the, the kind of the point when you're making, for me, making electronic music is sort of the, I mean, the thing I've always appreciated is kind of to maybe start with a bunch of devices and kind of let them dictate the progression of the sounds by the way they interact and then kind of being able to step away from it almost. Um, so it sort of has a, there's all, there are elements of, of chance, definitely. I mean, you definitely want to surprise yourself, but I think the point of electronic sound stuff is sort of make make something happen in the air or the body. So you classify some of your releases different sort of based on your, your techniques. You have them on different shelves, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's why, especially like seven inches as a documentary format, you know, because they don't, um, you know, they don't go on too long. And uh, it's sort of, um, but yeah, I don't really consider it music, you know, so I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> maybe I haven't decided. <laughs> a number of your seven inches have documented uh, installation processes or installations you've done and, or um, uh, both sound installations. And, and I think uh, so kind of, uh, well, I guess they're all sound installations, but uh, look more physical uh, pieces. Um well, how do you approach? How does your approach differ when doing an installation than when working on stuff for a record? I mean, all the installations have come from an idea. You know, I mean, I think that's the there's certain ideas that can only be realized like in a physical space. Um, working on a recording is just so much more possibilities available. All the installations are, have been kind of different, and a lot of them are just kind of explorations of a phenomena that can kind of continuously go on its own. I mean, one of them in particular was the installation was made in order to make an LP out of it later. That's that was uh, done in in Venice, uh, whereas turntables playing like uh, sounds of a, one side of the record, and then they're being blown. The tone arms are being blown around with fans, and it's like the sounds going into the space. And then that recording was pressed on the other side, so it's sort of like. Uh, uh, yeah, like a, making an installation as a way to make a record, maybe, is, <laughs> is what that, I like uh, sometimes. <laughs> is that project? It's somehow an easier than composing or whatever, you know. So, is that the, yeah, project, the project for, for an, an LP? LP yeah. uh, mm-hmm. One method of nearly mm-hmm. avoiding the composer? <laughs> that's that's the one. Uh, Actually, the Prise du Son on this one side is uh, by Eric Lacasa on there. He's a gratitude he made a he made a field recording of my installation <laughs> so. i like the way that you des- describe this because it, it it's like you're almost trying to let the music play itself or let the sound play itself like you've, yeah. you've almost just put the wheels in motion and then removed so that you're experiencing at the same time so it's it's almost like it's evolving as you watch it yeah yeah no i mean that's that's a goal something to strive for for sure but yeah i have there's some other seven inches that are installation stuff too and um yeah uh actually the label that helped release that lp i lost touch with him but there was an interesting label called edition 
and he and he put out some conceptual records and he was uh he put out a i did a single-sided seven inch that's just an installation of piezos feeding back environmentally kind of so mm. um yeah it's it's like it's making its own sound without without any uh activity from me sometimes <laughs> uh, avoiding the composer <laughs> it's the goal it's the goal Uh, (laughs) always I I think your work has some uh, sort of lineage though from some of the like modern classical and experimental composers like Xenakis and Cage and uh, was that sort of stuff uh, an influence to you early on or was that something you came to after kind of getting into noise no it was a pretty early influence I mean uh, going back to the thrift store thing of course folkways records are very important to me i would always pick those up whenever i whenever i could and uh and uh but i i definitely heard a lot of that stuff pretty early on but um um yeah it's it's uh, yeah it's an influence i mean that kind of goes back to that idea about if you have a blank CD when there's no artist information, what, you know, how you would classify it without knowing, you know, because it's some of the, some of the best of like contemporary classical stuff, you know, this, the sound can be appreciated whether you know the subject or the sources, you know, I kind of, I think they kind of taught me that. Do you have any uh, favorite or influential pieces from that realm? I mean, I did see on, public television I was remembering I saw I caught part of a documentary on Steve Reich I, I call I say Steve Reich I don't know but um where he was his group was performing this piece that he's done for swinging microphones over speakers so they they make these feedback tones but it, but it's like very precise that you know they swing them according to his score so that you know the tones only appear and disappear but it, it's like that that really blew my mind and then yeah, but then it's it kind of ties into installations. There's a lot of things that I'd like to do, but I don't have enough equipment and stuff. So that kind of humbled me. Yeah. It's like, wow, yeah. Like, you know, something you make a good thing, and then you think, wow, what if I had 30 of these? You know, but <laughs> that'd be really cool. But but you do what you can, I guess. But yeah, Steve Reich is great. So uh, after you moved from Sacramento, you moved to like San Francisco Bay Area, right? Yeah. And there was kind of a, a pretty heavy scene there with uh, like Seven Hertz and Scott Arford, Randy Yao, uh, Thomas DiMuzio. Um, yeah. And you, you lived at Seven Hertz for a while too, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. What uh, what was it like it in that a, time? It, it seems a... really, really active. Yeah. Huh. I mean, San Francisco was just different then in a lot of ways and uh but living at Seven Hertz is just—I mean, Scott Arford is a great friend of mine. I learned a lot from him, definitely. I mean, you know, many nights you you just hear like brutal noise emerging from under his closed door, you know, into the <laughs> into the early morning stuff just being cranked, you know. And then, uh, you know, Michael Nine from Death Squad, of course, lived yeah. there. Uh, massive, uh, massive. Uh, hoarder of information of all kinds of deviance and um you know randy Yao, great designer um and there there's 
yeah, when there were a lot of great shows at Seven Hertz, a lot of, um, and then people, especially also had Recombinant, uh, which also brought a lot of European people through at various times. So um, there was just a lot of, a lot of interplay. Everyone was working on their own kind of stuff. You know, inspiring. Uh, what kind of things did you learn from from Scott Arford? Ah, man, it's it's hard to put into words. I mean, I, I just uh, maybe his enthusiasm <laughs> was uh, inspiring to me. It's because he and I are kind of a good counterbalance. Because he he's like not really ever in a bad mood or anything, you know. So maybe it's kind of a yin yang, positive negative type of thing. <laughs> I can see that. So I know that's I, also a tough question because <laughs> when you when you absorb something from someone else, it's it's osmosis, and you sort of it becomes a part of you. These these things you learn through life. So I didn't know if there was any sort of specifics that uh, that you picked up, or you know, if it's if it was just sort of like a general uh, vibe of experimentation kind of, or trying, you know, trying and failing and trying, or approach to recording or techniques. Yeah, all, I mean, I watched over his shoulder a lot of times, uh, um, and then I was, uh, there was a music store that we were at together, and I told him, man, you should buy this mixer, it's like really <laughs> messed up, and it's like, a, I don't know if you've ever seen Scott Arford use this mixer, but it's amazing, it's, I mean, I I never knew that it was going to like become such a dominant thing in his life, it's like he's... Fully, he's he's like he knows this thing like inside and out. It's this weird. I think it's made by Yamaha. It's a, he might he might have. I don't know how many models like this they made, but they were like white in a weird metal case, and it had a built-in drum machine, like a little like organ buttons that you push, and so then you could do this. You know, feed the outputs into the inputs and change the EQ and just just feed back on itself in really nasty ways. And he's putting like signals in there and sending the signal out and do another channel and distorting that. And it's just like, just, uh, just nice to, yeah. Spirit of experimentation. <laughs> Careful. You're making Dre gray drool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see that look in his eyes. <laughs> how many, uh, how many TVs were there at seven Hertz? Oh man. A lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah, we, I'm sure we got on each other's nerves, you know, they, they, I'm not a big film person. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I just, certain movies, certain films made big impacts on me, but I'm not. I don't like to watch films that much. But uh, they would, man, they'd have like three or four in a row, just crazy nights, just blasting, <laughs> coming through the floor, just stuff like uh, Gaspar Noe, you know, and just like, uh, uh just bad. Bad times, you know. Bad. You know? <laughs> I don't know if you ever see. Have you ever seen the Chris Burden videotape? You know the artist Chris Burden. What? What's yes. the, yeah, yes. videotape? Yes. I don't. It's amazing. I think it's called like Six Pieces or something like that. But we used to watch that, and it's like it's super disturbing because there's a piece in there where it's like uh, he's on a ladder and the gallery's flooded, and then the, the water's like electrified, and there's like no way for him to get out. So if he falls off the ladder, he like gets electrocuted <laughs> and it's just all the pieces are like that there's one where he's rolling in broken glass and stuff and it's just like sounds yeah, amazing man we just i mean if you can just imagine a library of you know jonestown manson all the all the all the hits the, the, hits blue, of the, 90s. the, blue, chip, <laughs> the blue chip stuff you know 
But and a lot of I mean a lot of stuff would kind of surface and be used in in uh, some of the stuff Michael Nine was doing um, with the public access stuff with Pain Factory oh, yeah. and with Fuck TV. But the Pain Factory, of course, you're you're uh, you're on one of the episodes <laughs> yeah. of that. Was that done? Was that Ridiculous. live? Like, at, yeah. was it pre-recorded or was it actually live? Like when it aired for the first time? Oh, do you remember? No, I, I think they I think they aired it later, but I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was recorded. All those performances were recorded live in the studio. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah, it's funny. With there's just it's that one of public our access yeah. kind of lighting and everything. <laughs> like, oh man, yeah. But I, I love that when we actually watched your set uh, gearing up for the episode, and it is kind of like what I picture when I hear "Crawl Unit." I mean, just your table is just. There's just like a speaker and then there's like a weird radio and like a lot of things plugged in and I can't tell. It looks like a mess, like on the table. <laughs> but I kind of picture you when I when I listen to Crawl Unit is like you're kind of harnessing this like mess. Uh, yeah. Is that kind of was that kind of your procedure yeah. a little bit like what we saw in that video? I mean, is that kind of your how you would kind of approach recording? Yeah, in fact. I mean, I think since then it's just gotten worse and worse, you know, because I mean, I, you know, I have problems playing live. I don't really like it that much, but it's like, there's, I, I kind of like to have a messy, messy bunch of stuff for some reason. It seems to maybe to keep it more unpredictable in some ways. And um, I mean, there was an era when I was like, Instead of using like knobs or faders on a mixer, I would just plug things in and out and stuff, you know, because I, I just felt more direct, you know, or something like that. So it's like you just pick up a cord and you don't really know which piece of equipment it's coming from, you know, and that kind of thing, which is it's a fun to do. Sometimes I, I advise it to to uh, surprise yourself sometimes. But um, yeah, and then I have a really bad habit. Like if I play a show, I just like throw all the stuff in a suitcase and then I don't like look at it again and then the next time I open the suitcase it's like this huge rat's nest you know I was like ah but <laughs> I think if your process is fairly like uh, studied and, and disciplined for some reason listening to the sounds they, a lot of the times it, it comes off as very austere but, but not what I picture, uh, like shoving, just shoving random cables into a mixer and seeing what happens. So that's, uh, uh, I'll try, I'll try that approach next time I'm listening. Try picturing that. The more and more we've been listening to, especially everyone gets what they deserve leading up to this. There is a pitch blackness to some crawl unit recordings. I would say a lot of them. I would say especially that and especially the future in reverse. Where is where does that come from, and is that was that an intention when you go into recording, or does it come out naturally? <laughs> mm. uh, no, I don't think it's intentional. I mean, I'm a pretty negative person, uh, pessimistic, I would say. Uh, but I didn't. I mean, I. It's it's. Uh, I never really sat down to create a piece that puts you in a certain specific frame of mind or anything like that but I mean I definitely think all my stuff might have a, a darker tinge to it but I, it's sort of a relationship that goes back and forth you know I mean it seems funny when I think about 
starting out, you sort of try to make sounds for yourself, you know, or like, whoa, what if I could compose a piece that like put me into a trance, you know, <laughs> but it never works. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> that's like, that's the, yeah, that's like the ongoing problem of existence. You can never really fool yourself, you know what I mean? So it's sort of, uh, uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, it's more about, uh, not fragility, I wouldn't say that. It's more about like uh, how states of mind are fleeting, maybe. Kind of getting into some... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked a sound that's kind of delirious. That's sort of... But like I said, if, you know, if you're the one that made it, it doesn't really work on you, you know? <laughs> I have learned. <laughs> well, well, certainly hearing that album from the other room, I'm constantly wondering if I'm hearing hearing what I think I'm hearing. Like, is it something in the apartment next door? Is that an album <laughs> playing? Like, I'm constantly like questioning my experience. And I would say, if you're alone, it's it is um, dark and unnerving. I think I was in Vienna or something, and this met, I met some promoters or people from a, a festival or something. And uh, this this woman, she she like. Somehow, when she found out it was me or something, she she just, like, cornered me and went on this whole thing about how she hears in the sounds, like, uh, you know, Tibetan sky burial, like, birds, like, eating human flesh and stuff like this. And I was just like, I mean, it was, yeah, it's amazing. What do you say? You know, I... Uh, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that, that you got that from it, but, but it was not... Uh, yeah, it's not, I mean, how could you ever create something like that? So that wasn't your source, a Tibetan sky burial? No. no okay. No. Well, I ordered a package from you recently of some of this stuff up on the issue shop, and you sent uh, an apology postcard <laughs> along with it. Uh, <laughs> with, uh, with uh, like, the back has an area to fill in, like, a time and date at which you can collect your apology in person. <laughs> I love yeah, that, it so much. It, we this is just like it really hits home. Yes, we love it yes, so much. yes, yes. This 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 guy right uh, here, Mike, likes to apologize just, for everything he's ever said or done. Just a blanket, so that we can start fresh. Yeah, yeah. Just I'm yeah, so, I'm yeah. sorry for everything I've ever done. I'm sorry for everything I, can, I do in the future. He says it regularly. Yeah, I can relate. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, that was made for a. It was like a group show in San Francisco and. And I just had a apology tape loop playing like in a empty room. You had to open a curtain, and then there's the, the card was there like for that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. That, uh, I mean, I definitely apologize a lot. I don't know if that piece was uh, that successful. <laughs> I lo you know what? No, I think I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. You know what? That my you piece is my apology piece. Has failed, maybe. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you are you are forgiven. Apology accepted. Apology accepted. Okay. The, the more I read it, the more sincere the apology becomes. Absolutely. And the fact that it's oh, tangible man. makes it even more real. It's the only real <laughs> apology. Oh, man. Uh, um, no, I, mean, I guess you could say that's sort of my riff on, like, you know, when I was growing up and soaking up all this 
soaking up everything, you know, Fluxus and all those early art movements are super inspiring to me. So I guess, you know, I thought I'd, it's sort of my, my uh, conceptual entry. It seems like something that someone should maybe already did. I don't know, but, you know, I love those, those kind of... There's an amazing book. It's called uh, Performance Anthology. Uh, I have a couple copies of it, and it's just this listing of performances that happened in California for like a 10-year period or something, and that book wow. just like blew my mind super, because it's just, you just open it, and it's like, um, I'm blanking on his name now, but uh, kind of an obscure artist, but he did a, you know, he did a horrible performance that was like inspired by Vietnam, where he like took a flamethrower to a mouse in the gallery and stuff, and he just like... Oh, you know, just stuff that you, you know, Tom Marioni is in there. He's amazing. He's like a. I believe I've seen this uh, this book art. before. I think John Weiss showed me this book. Um, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> you know what's amazing is, uh, of course, I'm blanking on that artist's name too. But there's a piece called Velocity Three, I think, where he basically takes a running start and just keeps ramming into the gallery wall until he like breaks a hole through it with his body. And uh, and my friend Scott Generic actually did a cover of that <laughs> at the Hotel Utah, which is a bar in San Francisco. He did like a cover version of this performance, and then and then he had to like come back and patch the drywall and stuff later. They made him fix it all, but it was just like <laughs> I mean, that's more people should do cover versions of performances. I think absolutely they should. Was that yeah. now? Was that performed on the U.S. tour you did with Scott? No, no. <laughs> that would have been a pretty good survived. night of tour. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that tour was like 30 dates or something. He was doing, uh, he has a system of like a amplified string type of thing. They could do percussive and bow, bow it and things like that. Yeah, that's what he was using. Well, you were saying you, you're not, you don't really like playing live, but you did a month-long U.S. tour. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. 1996. Is that what, did you, so, I mean, I don't know, what was the... What was yeah? You know, what was that tour like? What was the you know? Oh, what man. was the vibe? Oh man, I could talk about the tour a lot. It was crazy, crazy times. Um, um, oh man, I mean, we played outside in the desert in Arizona. It was really cool. Dave Wright from Not Breathing, good friend of mine early on. He he used to build circuit bent stuff for me sometimes and send it to me and um. I think that might have been when I first met him. I'm not sure. Um, definitely played with Skin Crime. I think it UMass Amherst, maybe or something like that. Wow! Awesome. <laughs> so that was. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's just that weird. It's it, it's like uh, the kind of stuff I was doing then. I just I feel like every city you never really know how people would react. You know, I mean. But you also went to Japan too, right? Yeah, Randy Yao and I toured, did a tour in 98. It was great, great experience. Um, got to meet, meet and hang out with all those, all those guys. Um, I was thinking too, the kind of the Japanese connection. I, there's a, I don't know if you've ever seen these magazines that Ron put out that had a CD with them called Report. Our, our report mm-hmm. yep. and there's a Japanese one and it's just like full of contacts. So we just like wrote to everybody in there, you know? And, wow. But yeah, you get to, uh, 
yeah, I got to meet, you know, Third Organ and uh, we stayed with Seed Mouth, who's kind of an obscure, yes. obscure artist. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, played with Robo Chan Man and. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think about this performance that I saw Sukora. Sukora do. He's another kind of obscure one. I, I, I always like people that do things in their own way <laughs> and it's unique like the Sakura performance was it was just a turntable it had a record run out groove of a record just like a the end of a record just that clicking and then he just sat there and he had a broken like outbook cable and he just like kind of crinkled it back and forth so the sound was just cutting in and out and it was sort of like I don't know it stuck with me because it's such a I mean it's it's noise, you know, but I mean, I mean, like you guys were talking about nerve net noise, you know, it's another oddball mm-hmm. group that, that just have their own <laughs> approach, you know, so I always like that. Um, but yeah, Randy, Randy, we played in the, in the record shop, uh, JNR. I don't know if that's still going. It was a little tiny noise shop in a, like in a, office building kind of I don't know how to describe it it's like one of those buildings in Japan where there's like millions of shops in one building and one of them was this you know there's like little kids in there looking at Gero Gary gay 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 albums and stuff it's just funny you're like wow I can't believe this exists you know? but we played live in the shop you know and I remember like kind of strolling around before or after and just like passing another shop in the same building and it's like I looked in, and it's just a guy sitting at the end of the unit, at the end of the room, like at a desk. And then on every wall surface is just pictures of women's lips with, like, numbers. You could order them. You could, like, buy. You just go up to the guy, and you say 817 or 929, and he just, like, gives them to you in an envelope. Just these weird color pictures of people's lips. And I was just like... Japan is a very strange place. <laughs> I mean, you hear about places, like a store where they just sell lighters or something like that, and everything from like a micro one up to like a molder with like a lighter installed in it. You know, it's just like I love it. I love Japan. It's great. <laughs> it's so weird. There's a split. There's a split seven inch from that tour, right? The un- uh, yeah. of Carl Yun and, and and Randy. Awesome. Yeah. In fact, I found some more that I I think I can I need to make the covers but I think there's an apology lock groove on there if I remember it <laughs> oh good we'll, we'll just keep it playing for a while it's perfect okay yeah. did you meet or play with Mom Brutes uh, he didn't play but we we hung out quite a bit so yeah, cool he was a really interesting guy I don't think so he played cool. did you ever meet him no no was, you know yeah, yeah he was a real he was like a construction worker He has. he's like he was real dark, like for, I guess from the sun, and then he had a rough voice. <laughs> I remember that. So if I if I remember it right, but ah, uh, so but, uh, cool. But wow. yeah, I'm trying to think of who else was. I mean, definitely Masana was there, and um, Koji. Man, yeah, definitely. Awesome. And you saw Mersbau and Masana like on those early U.S. tours, right? When they came to, yeah. did they play Seven uh-huh. Hertz? 
Man, there's f- I can't imagine yeah, that like he there's footage but... from bottom of the hill for sure yeah. of Masana. You mentioned a, an apology lock groove on that uh, seven inch with Randy Yao. You've done uh, kind of a lot with lock grooves. Your side of the California boxes lock grooves and that uh, uh, yeah. disasters of self uh, triple LP that Crippled Intellect put out is uh, sides interrupted with lock grooves between tracks. Uh, what's where does the love for the lock groove come from? Oh man, I just love them. Uh, uh, I mean, I've always loved loops in in many forms, um, and uh, yeah, especially like the stuff on the three LP kind of gave me a chance to, you know, it's it's almost like hiding things in plain sight or something like that. Because all those the loops, the locks that are in between the 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 trance tracks or whatever you want to call it, they're they're all like recordings of people uh, that are influential to me. So it's sort of like, a, um, you know, and it takes some effort to get in there, get the needle in there and stuff. It, it, it just kind of demands <laughs> demands a reaction <laughs> from the, the user. So I always like that. Got to uh, at least get up to take it off or switch it if you're, mm-hmm. you're on a lock groove and got to place it if it's a solid lock, yeah. Uh, Participation. Were the uh, were the Triple R records, uh, <laughs> the Lock Roof records, uh, an influence? The the Triple R hundred and are you on the five hundred? Oh yeah, I'm on. I'm on. Yeah, I'm on the five hundred. <laughs> yeah, those are great. I mean, they just it's genius. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else. I mean, uh, definitely praise to Paul from Ardvark mastering i'm sure i don't know if you know him but yeah i used to i've never met him i don't really know him but i to work with uh for no for noise pressing noise records in the i think early 2000s and obviously before paul at aardvark was the the like (laughs) yeah legend i mean he's cut a lot of cut a lot of great noise records yeah i mean definitely um uh wonder if he cut that there's an amazing Hands 2 record that's like a I think it's a split with mental anguish or something like that but it's like the way it's cut is almost like they didn't they he, he made the cutting head like too light or something like the grooves don't hold the needle but there's still sound in there and it's like you look at it and it almost looks like someone sandpapered the record or something but it's like a recording but it's just the needle just drags around on it it's like yeah genius did you send in a track for the uh lock groove or did Ron just take something that he already had of crawl units for the 500. Do you remember? I think I sent it. I, you know, I think I sent a track. And now, if awesome. I remember right, I think it's just the loop of uh, of uh, jackrabbit distress cries or something like that. I used to kind of collect <laughs> these uh, records that they made for hunters to attract attract. Uh, animals to shoot you know they used to Redditors. sell these records <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean now it's like digital they have like a push button thing you put in your pocket and you can like emit these sounds of like animals in distress because then it lures other animals out i did an installation based on those recordings too but uh yeah it's terrifying it's terrifying sound yeah it sounds I think incredibly that's what, unnerving <laughs> uh what was that installation called uh oh man it has the name Johnny Stewart in it because that's the guy, the company, who, are, who makes a lot of distress cry records. And oh, it was, okay. 
a spatial installation of these kind of forms made out of plaster that were emitting these distress cries. They were like spread across the floor. Uh, that was actually in a warehouse called Lobot in, in Oakland. That was kind of an uh, influential place for a lot of people. Uh, um, I played there before. Well, a lot of before. Shows. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it, yeah, I don't remember the exact title of that record, but I know it's for Johnny Stewart. Uh, have you done any recording in a studio or do you mostly work out of like a home studio and, and field locations? I know there's different locations credited uh, on, on some of the recordings. Never, never worked in a real studio. I guess I, when I made that 10 inch, I had to go transfer it to that or something, pay someone for some studio time to make it that or something. But that was a long time ago. No, I never, I mean, I've, uh, I did some stuff at Recombinant, but not, I mean, not recording. It was more, uh, they had a crazy, I mean, Recombinant has had some crazy systems over the years, but they had a, a one that was like, you could, it was, rep- it was a graphic representation of the surround sound speakers. And then you could move this object with the mouse and it would like determine which speaker the sound came out of and the volume you can change the size of it and all this stuff is so not used to let me just mess around in there and stuff but yeah over my head (laughs) i just found a four track on the street like six months ago or something and so i've been thinking it it works so maybe that's the way to go four track cassette might be time again I always had good, well, what what do you normally use for recording experiences <laughs> you know what I used the most was this I mean I always felt like weird about it because because uh, I was just so reluctant to get a computer uh, for so long but I used this this uh, eight eight track hard disk recorder thing made by Fostex yep. <laughs> I did a lot uh-huh. I like it a lot the mixing is, is physical, you know, and the EQ is pretty great on it too, if I remember right. But it's, uh, but yeah, I, I, I felt a little insecure about it at times. <laughs> I remember Francisco Lopez was just shaking his head, saying, "I can't believe, I can't believe this is what you <laughs> work on," because those guys are so far advanced as far as computer recording. They were just like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but that's I don't. I've always appreciated not, um, I mean, the thing I don't like about the computer is, is your, the visual aspect of, of it, you know, it's kind of like, I, I prefer to just mix with headphones without seeing any, any information. <laughs> so, you, you don't use a computer in, uh, in any of your creation? I mean, I use it as the final, I use it kind of like a tape recorder. Right. I kind of do the, use, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I kind of know just enough to <laughs> to get by. <laughs> but uh, that's what I always love about Karkowski is he had a he had a, a laptop that was like OS nine, and he just refused to ever upgrade it because it was like Juju is special, like don't touch anything. <laughs> like this is just how I know how to work with the computer. I know there's one software, and just like. Don't attach it to the internet. Don't let anything update. <laughs> it's just like, I, I really appreciate that because it's like, I mean, yeah, you just get to know there is a, there is a value in having less options, you know, or <laughs> for me, knowing, knowing less. 
sometimes. Oh, is... oh totally. I th- and I think there is a primitiveness to to your work that I th- I mean I I know that I'm very attracted to. Uh, just that, yeah. There there's just always a, a, a sense of this could go wrong. You know, at any moment, you know, and and I, but I yeah. think that's I think that's I think that's a, a that is a a really magical quality to to a lot of crawl unit and to a lot of your yeah, uh, a and, lot of your work. And removing the digital element allows you to experience it in a way where you're not envisioning something digital. You're envisioning you're not seeing it, that, like you, you said, you're not seeing the yeah. the wavelength. It it's, feels like an actual yeah. thing yeah. that's happening, um, even though maybe you fabricated it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I. I mean, I've always, I, I like the sense of instability or potential for things to go different directions. I always uh, kind of like the, uh, it's sort of like just that feeling of the ground maybe crumbling beneath your feet or that kind of thing. I mean, that's what I always loved about the real, the good harsh noise that I like is that kind of propulsion. It's like the, it's like always, uh, it's like eating itself, you know what I mean? It's kind of uh, yes. just mm-hmm. crumbling and and uh, so, but I, for some reason, the way I make stuff, I, I uh, like I don't think I've ever been able to make like a, I couldn't make like a 30 minute noise piece on the side of a tape or something. I just, it always seems to be more important to me in moments, you know, mm-hmm. moments. So it's more... Uh, yeah, not that it's more human, but it's uh, yeah, maybe feels a little more living or something, a little more alive, or which is yeah, life is unstable. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why we've been so attracted to you know, um, crawl unit Joe Colley during kind of quarantine because we do get to have a personal space, but you feel like you're, you know, traveling mentally, you know, it's like taking you out of the space you're in and leading you on a journey in your mind. Wow. Yeah. I mean, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's what I, that's what I'm sorry. I look I'm for. Sorry. From what I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's yeah. You know, that's definitely what I look for when I, uh, often when I want to listen to something, but, uh, yeah, you know, the more you going back to knowing less, it's sort of like gets harder and harder to be taken away because you start getting bogged down in what kind of equipment people are using and stuff like that. So uh, I think going back to your question about the openness, I was just my naivete was was so much different back then that it's like I I kind of yeah I just uh, I I looked for such a variety of sounds because I was kind of I didn't have uh, much to compare it to so it's sort of like your options kind of narrow as you become more expert in your skills <laughs> maybe I think uh, Tara said uh, in one of our other episodes that uh, nostalgia is seductive and I think that uh, one of the reasons of sort of this this era of noise and the, some of these questions we're asking is because of that naivete and the unknowing and it was be, because it was a time of discovering and uh, sort of figuring out for all of us of like what 
what was going on and, and learning more and more and more about this stuff where now you know a lot about this stuff. So some of that mystery has been uncovered. Some of that, you know, some of that has been scratched away and revealed knowledge. And you can never get back to that point. You can't, like you said, you can't <laughs> fool yourself. Uh, you can't listen to something you made and, and be surprised by it, really, unless you've completely forgotten how it sounds. But even then, you can probably hear your hands in it. And uh, mm. I think that's uh, an interesting an interesting concept kind of for uh, about noise and about part of why we do this podcast is just because I do like to uncover and discover the history about this stuff. But once you know it, you can't unknow it. It's like knowing the solution to a puzzle. You mentioned in an interview that you uh, sort of set up rules for yourself and then and then break them. Are there any rules you've had that you keep as sort of long long-standing guidelines for how you work? I think I yeah I go through phases. What I talked about before about the stuff being forwards and backwards, you know, and some of that maybe comes from like I was talking about before some of the fluxes and art movements where they're setting kind of limitation for something to occur in. And then, like I said, just the mix between field recordings and electronics. I just I some, somehow just came to this, uh, I don't want to mix those in my work anymore, really, but um, but I don't know. So if you're going to use a field really. recording, it's going to, it's, it's strictly field recording and there's no, no Hopefully. treatment yeah. of it and no. <laughs> <laughs> Until you decide to mess with it again and break yeah. your own rule. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there could be a situation where something has to happen like that, but I feel like there's sound for different purposes, maybe is the way to say it, which, uh, I guess you could call it all music or none of it music or all sound, but, but it's sort of like, uh, sometimes you just make a field recording just for yourself, you know? Did you have any formal art training or music training before starting, uh, or, or after <laughs> starting uh crawl unit and, and kind of releasing your own stuff? No. Um, I never, I went to a little bit of community college, but it's just, Nothing after that. I'm just uh, self-taught, I guess. Uh, I did have a, I got this random chance to go to my uncle had a was like a chaperone for a, a group of students that studied at the Royal College of Art in London, and it's like somebody dropped out, and there's like no refunds or something. So I got to buy their like room and board and just kind of like like wander into classes and stuff and so that was a really wow. fruitful time i mean that was you know it was like they were making lithographs and just i mean just to be in england too you know it's a cool experience um uh there's a we we did like a field trip and this guy had, i don't know if you ever heard of this artist artist stephen cripps i don't think he's very well known i think he is no longer alive but uh he was like a pyrotechnic sculptor. He would do these situations like shooting rockets at metal and stuff like that. And the guy, we went to visit like a printmaker and he had this book and it's just like, I think there's an article on him in ND or something, but that was pretty, another mind bending thing to think of physical ways to produce sounds that are not with instruments, you know, or <laughs> um, I always, you know, I remember a long time ago, Spencer Yeh uh, did a, he was asking people to write pieces for him to perform or something. I don't think he ever did it, but I, I wrote out this kind of score where it's him on a stool or something 
singing like a note and people like throwing stuff at him like quarters or something and each time he gets hit then the note has to change you know and i <laughs> it's like a, it has a good physical aspect to it um but yeah i wouldn't consider it musical necessarily I like that you want to let the audience participate, <laughs> like the lock yeah. move and all of these things. It's like, it's like, you know, we get to feel a part of it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this fits in anywhere, but I just was thinking today when I was growing up, we used to listen to KPFA, which is a Berkeley radio station in Negative Land, had a show, radio show called Over the Edge. And we used to just drive around and listen to that. And it's super... Super huge in my life. I don't know if you ever heard. It. They did some CDs of it too, but mm-hmm. but the you know it's I don't know what you would call that. I wouldn't call it music. And they don't use basically it's he's just mixing tapes and people calling in and all. It was just like it was just super inspiring and um, yeah. They they did a record where it's, I think they were from Concord, which is not far. And uh, one of their records, they kind of give you directions to their house, but it's like cut up and buried under all this noise and tape <laughs> stuff. So we used to drive around and try to figure out what they were talking about and stuff. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And that was an early, that was kind of an early discovery for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean... Well, that's kind of a think, performance piece, too. You guys talk too. about driving. I like listening <laughs> yeah. to stuff while I drive. We used to do stuff like uh, record the audio off of a movie and then just play it in the car, driving yes. around like RoboCop or something. Yes. <laughs> or you, oh, that'd be a good one. You hear all the little motor noises. <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> or like awesome. Apocalypse Now or something, you know. But uh, so, Yeah. Tapes, yeah, tapes of tape, movies is a cool thing. Tape, the Negative Land show, too. Mm-hmm. What was it? Tapes of movies, like actually playing the movie, not a soundtrack, but it's a it's a cool thing. <laughs> Good for the yeah. tour. If anyone if anyone uh, hasn't done this trick yet, tape, tape one of your favorite <laughs> movies and listen to it on tour. It's like watching it in your mind. Or, That's great. I didn't. I didn't know it was such a known thing. That's great. <laughs> or listen to a crawl unit CD and watch yeah. whatever movie in your mind uh, plays. I can promise you, it's it's not going to end well. But you're going. It is going to be a. It's going to be a rewarding experience. So we Heck mentioned yeah. the we mentioned the shop uh, that you've got stuff up at uh, a couple times now, I think in the episode, uh, you got anything new in the works or anything, uh, freshly come out. I know your last full length was no way in on Jason Leskowitz glistening examples, a fantastic record. Uh, that's, uh, it's on the glistening examples Bandcamp. You can check that one out. It's Bandcamp Friday. So give it a listen. The last couple things I finished were, uh, a track that's on actually the ferns, is the label that put up the Hive CD. They did a compilation LP that's really good. Um, I don't know if it's sold out or not, but I did a track for that. It's got like Menchi and Small Cruel Party and all the all the old men of noise or whatever. The same old guys. <laughs> but, uh, um, but then I did a 15-minute track that Fra- uh, Francisco Lopez got me this opportunity to commission this thing for this uh, museum show in in Madrid in Spain I don't know what the situation is because of the 
virus or whatever, but it was, according to him, it was the first like museum show with no visual element at all. It's just sound, and it's like this massive cure. I guess he just he he took tracks from like a massive a massive amount of people. So it's sort of a because he was always like a super uh, connect, connected networker. So it has like it's sort of his vision of like the underground network of of the time you know i don't know the exact dates of where everything is pulled from but it's it's amazing group of uh people on that but yeah that was the last thing that i finished huge thank you joe this is so awesome uh love love uh just love hearing hearing from you man this was this was really cool uh and since you don't have anything new we just everyone just needs to go just run the catalog everything from the (laughs) earliest stuff all the way up to the newest stuff it is you gotta get current you gotta get caught up it's a great time to get caught up what else are you doing come on joe joe may not uh go back and listen to those things but we all will uh for you uh so you don't have to worry about it joe we got three of us and everyone listening is gonna Gonna be going back and uh, checking all that out. So that's it's much appreciated. I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather uh, have it circulating, I guess, than than here. So. <laughs> Heck yeah! All right. Go 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 out. Let's go. Let's go. Empty Joe's stock of of uh, of of releases. Let's uh, we'll have the links up on the page, and uh, for all of us to enjoy. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so All much, right. man. This is awesome. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yay! You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artist for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noiseextra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.